And you all set with the sound now? You don't have the problem? No, I think it's good. So I think we're ready to start. Go ahead. For a Living is brought to you by the Illinois Economic Policy Institute and the Project for Middle Class Renewal at the University of Illinois. Hello and welcome to another edition of the For a Living podcast. I am your host, Frank Manzo. I serve as Policy Director of the Illinois Economic Policy Institute. And I am once again joined today by both of my co-hosts, professors at the School of Labor and Employment Relations at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, Bob Bruno and Emily LaBarbera Tuarag. How are both you guys doing today? Good. It's good to have you here, Frank. Very good. The topic today is local initiatives and local employment policies that states and cities can undertake to combat some of the federal laws that are coming down the pike, as well as protect workers in today's economy. So what we want to talk about are public policies from state and local governments. This idea, I think, was requested by a listener. So without further ado, let's chat about local initiatives that cities, towns, and states can take in order to counter some of the anti-worker legislation that's coming coming from the top. Yeah, and this is a uh, a, a, a very uh, a timely uh, conversation to have. I think any of our listeners are aware of um, the national climate, political climate right now, and with the control of uh, essentially all three branches of government by a pretty hostile uh, Republican Party uh, to the interest of working people and particularly to the labor movement. Uh, There's very little hope that federal labor or employment policy is going to be conducive uh, to promoting worker rights. And as we're sitting here, a bill was introduced uh, in the United States House of Representatives uh, to actually institute a national right to work law. Mm-hmm. And we can, as we have our conversation, we can talk more about what that would all mean. Uh, so it's important to talk about what can happen at the state level. It looks like a lot of the battle is going to happen at the state level and at the local level and at the county level. And the thinking is there are places around the country where uh, there are elected leaders who are supportive of organized labor and working people. So states that have a Democratic governor uh, and uh, control over their state assemblies, or at least two of the three uh, branches. Uh, apparently there are, I believe, at last count, only six states that have a Democratic governor and then Democrats controlling the two other houses. But there are 25 of such states in which the Republicans control all three. That, that said, there is a lot of churning going on at the state and local level. And 
quite frankly, a lot of legislation that ends up at the national level can percolate, it can start, it can be piloted at a state level. So what happens at lower levels of government around employment policy are critically important because they become these laboratories and these platforms. I think it was Justice Brandeis that talked about the states as being laboratories of democracy where you try, to, you try things out. And a lot of stuff that's been tried has been really bad for working people. And as we go on, we can maybe talk about some of that, uh, that data. But I think we really do need to talk uh, about the kinds of uh, policies that could be implemented. So just to kind of throw out what we could be talking about here, uh, local minimum wage mm-hmm. increases, right? Yes. At, not just the state level, but at city levels, right? County levels. Uh, policies around paid sick days. We're starting to see we're starting to see an expansion of such things, although there's only a small number of jurisdictions that have them. One of the hot topics right now are what are called fair scheduling laws or regular scheduling laws uh, of particular importance uh, to people working in the fast food industry and a lot of low-wage positions. But but other legislation, legislation, a kind of worker bill of rights, right? Uh, Influence over temp agencies, and day labor agencies that address health and safety conditions, for example. Also at the state level, um, passing legislation that would give protection to workers who are not protected under uh, federal labor law. For example, domestic workers. So a domestic workers bill of rights, right? In addition to these bills that focus on employment rights, there are also efforts to strengthen, preserve collective bargaining rights, prevailing wage, uh, prevailing wage laws, right? So there is a lot of activity that's happening yeah. uh, all over the place. Of course, here in Chicago, uh, there has been a recent growth and passage here and in Cook County of some. Uh, additional employment policies. Uh, but quite frankly, Chicago's kind of catching up uh, to some other areas, California being a leading example uh, of, of this kind of legislation. So I think these are the kind of things we, we, should be, we should be talking about because it's where organized labor and working people, I think, can, can make some difference. And, and imagine if, and of course we shouldn't leave out New York State, which has passed some interesting legislation addressing certain industries like the nail salon industry, for example. Um, I think a, a, a bill of rights around taxi cab uh, drivers also. But if, if these policies spread from places like New York and California and became more popular in, in other parts of the country, hopefully they set the table for some future change. But until we get federal change and the change of politics at the national level, the real battle is going to happen uh, at lower levels uh, of, uh, of government. So we have a lot to, that we can talk about. Emily, you've got some thoughts, you've got some notes. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think a particularly timely topic, but also important to remember that taking a local approach is the way pretty much any hmm. any kind of change has happened in our country. I mean, we're a country that is driven by 
local and state initiatives pushing a national agenda. So the same could be true for right to work, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're now at this point, right, where 27 states Mm -hmm. have right to work. So we've crossed that critical point of um, now we have more states with right to work than not. Um, Obviously, you know, most of those states went right to work quite a long time ago. Um, in the 1950s, and it's been a, a newer wave of right to work recently. But it, you know, it's been because of that localized uh, initiative to pass these right to work laws that now there's actually some legitimacy to be able to pass a national right to work. Now, so that's that's bad news for workers. Obviously, the flip side of that, of course, is as different states and counties passed gay rights laws. Um, the Supreme Court ultimately ruled in favor, right, of um, gay marriage being legal and mandating that in every state. So, I mean, there's, you can look at civil rights. You can look at any number of issues um, that are, that we would view as, as positive changes in our democracy. Um, they all come from a predominantly, you know, localized and state uh, initiative. So, I, you know, I, I think that um, there are a lot of, if we look at it from the perspective of, you know, um, what's happening in our own backyard. Um, we, we could look at, there's both negative things that are happening, seeing states like Michigan and Wisconsin and looks like Missouri, maybe mm-hmm. going right to work very soon. Um, you know, these states that Indiana, of course, um, are, are, you know, we're the birthplaces of like modern industrial unionization, right? Turning right, to, you know, voting to go right to work. Um, Yet at the same time, we're seeing, you know, initiatives like, you know, a significant increase in a minimum wage on a local county state level. Um, you know, I, you know, on a on a statewide level, we have Connecticut, California, Massachusetts, and Oregon having some kind of paid sick day hmm. laws. That's a far larger number if we look at the city and county level. Many more city counties passing some kind of paid sick days, as well as not just paid sick days, but um, paid safe time. So for women who have experienced some kind of um, sexual harassment or domestic violence or stalking, there's not just paid sick time, but paid sick and safe time, which are being passed on a, on a local level. So there, you know, and this is a trend that I think will continue. Um, One is a reaction to um, very anti-worker pro-business policies that are happening on a national level. Um, you know, I mean, we, you know, in response to seeing over 2 million, you know, people participating in what we're calling a women's march, right? But many of these issues are, are all tied together, looking at wages and sick days and fair scheduling needs, you know, definitely impact women to a great extent, um, who are often, you know, the majority of workers who are working on low wage jobs. So... Yeah, I think it's it's a really important thing to be talking about. Um, but I don't think it's new, I guess, is my no. point. Right? It's not a, like, we figured this out kind of thing. It's a, let's, let's keep using this. And let's be real, like the, you know, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, figured this out a long time ago. Yeah. Right? Um, they, they've been working on a local level for a heck of a long time, which is how we ended up with right-to-work passing. So, um, you know, if we hadn't been quite so asleep at the wheel, maybe we would have... Uh, we would have caught it a little faster. But that said, um, and I also think we cannot underestimate not just, you know, policy is super duper important. 
Absolutely. But there are successful organizing campaigns. You know, unions are successfully organizing. One of the most, you know, Trump hotels yeah, went just, union and they settled a contract, right? In DC? In, uh, well, in Vegas and then in DC, mm-hmm. they're calling, you know, the new hotel is calling to unionize there. I mean, there are examples of, you know, private sector union campaign uh, drives that are winning. So we shouldn't uh, neglect the importance of, um, you know, still, even in light of potential right to work uh, legislation, it doesn't mean that unions are a done deal. No, no, God, no, 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 good and good to continue to remind us that there are these success stories out there. And and we see this. Um, uh, this linkage, right, or, 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 or the leverage, leveraging, because we now have, I don't know, Frank, maybe you have the statistic in front of you, how many states just recently in the 2016 election passed minimum wage increases? Did, I think we got more than a dozen. So I have the numbers not necessarily for the election, but how many on the, yeah, the the first of this year um, actually raised their minimum wage. What was that? Uh, 18 states raised their minimum wage uh, on New Year's Day or just after. Um, and actually one state, New York, uh, increased their minimum wage on New Year's Eve. So right before <laughs> uh, the new year. Uh, and then 22 uh, cities and counties also raised their, uh, their local minimum wage you know, on or, or about New Year's Day. So... These are some of these are just cost of living adjusted increases, sure. and then some of them are major steps, you know, closer to fifteen dollars an hour. Well, so what, what I would that's fantastic. What I would point out two things: one, we went uh, uh, during a, a period of time where the land sort of lied fallow, right? We couldn't pass minimum wage increases. It's been a long time, mm-hmm. frankly, right? Just sort of, and we're still kind of getting these wages up to what a true livable wage would be, right? Uh, so all of a sudden we get this big. Exp- you know, this big explosion. And there's plenty of income inequality out there. Right. Uh, but it wasn't just that fact. There is also this, I'm thinking about Emily's point here, there was this, and there continues to be this creative organizing that's being done around the fight for 15 and its different, in its different iterations, yeah. suggesting that that labor organizing, that economic pressure put on in the streets, rank-and-file workers going out on strike, organizing, actually moved the political process. It achieved a political ends, right? Mm-hmm. And it got minimum wage passed in places like South Dakota, which would you know, otherwise be a red state with, you know, I don't know, six union members. Um, and so we get, these, we get this impressive accomplishment through the, in the political process. As, and so we get policy, but it comes from in the streets, rank and file, creative organizing, uh, and and so I think it was the National Employment Law Project estimated just how many low-wage workers, how many workers that were under minimum wage prior to the passage of these, right? right? And it was some unbelievably, ridiculously high number of people that got a pay raise. And if you estimated what that was, it was in the millions of dollars that... Uh, would now be going to workers, assuming they continued to work those roughly same number uh, of hours, and it and it was these it was it, it was a product of these policies being passed, these laws being passed. But it was a most likely an outgrowth of the organizing, organized labor, 
and unorganized labor really did to push the political process because it wasn't as if employers just decided, of course, McDonald's and Walmart did agree to to spend a little bit more money. That's true. But it was a product of... Uh, oh, they only agreed to do it because, because, of, all the because of all that pressure. Media pressure and it was, as a result of the... Pro- I mean, you can ask, uh, you know, always going back to our group of adult students, right? I mean, you can ask some students, you know, have you ever heard... Did you know, what do you know about the Women's March? A lot of them, unfortunately, will be like, not much. You ask them what you know about Fight for 15, everybody has heard about it. Right? Right. So, it's, it's you know, it, it is. I think it's it's like the... You know, people say, oh, what did the Occupy movement accomplish? Right. And I think it accomplished a lot in the sense that, you know, pretty much everybody now knows what you mean when you say 99% versus, mm. you know, the 1%. True. You know, got, it's become part of the American dialect, right? The, the 99%. It just gets thrown around. You know, it doesn't matter what your political persuasion is, whether you agree with it or not. It just, it is part of our language now. You know, it's part, the media uses it, politicians use it. The left uses it. The right uses it. You know, it's it's, the concern is that it gets co-opted by the right or by you know groups that don't have the ninety nine percent's interest truly at heart, but say the ninety nine percent are suffering because taxes are too high. Sure, but the ninety nine percent still know we're suffering. So you know, (laughs) there's. I just want to point out that you know, and I was I I was just teaching this last night actually. You know, the last time the minimum wage. Because people kind of balk at the minimum wage. Like, so the, the question is, like, what is the role of the minimum wage? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point of a minimum wage? Is the point of a minimum wage so kids can buy hamburgers and pay for gas money or mm-hmm. train fare? Mm-hmm. Or is the point of the minimum wage to allow you to have just the most ba- to, to be able to hold on to the most basic standard of living? Not the white picket fence standard of living, but like the, the like, I have a roof over my head, I can afford ramen noodles, and I can take the bus to work. Like that kind of basic, right, standard of living. And of course, the most um, sort of uh, popular political narrative, and maybe we can put a link to this when we post this, is, you know, um, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren's, uh, she's got this like five minute soundbite where she talks about how critical her mother getting a minimum wage job was after her father had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And this was in the 60s. And that her mother had been a stay-at-home mom, but the father had had a heart attack, wasn't able to work, and they were at risk of losing their home. And because of her mother being able to get a minimum wage job at the local Sears, they were able, you know, not to live in some great level of comfort, comfort, but they didn't lose their home. Right, they didn't lose their home, um, and so if we say that's the purpose of the minimum wage, and if the minimum wage, there was a decision in the 1960s not to tie the minimum wage to the consumer price index, right? The last time the minimum wage, um, like sort of held real consumer value, you know, where it was yeah. where it matched your capacity to to maintain that most standard was 1968. Huh. Right, so in 1968, right. the minimum wage was about a dollar seventy-five an hour, maybe a dollar seventy, dollar seventy-five an hour. If you calculate that in just most basic inflation terms, right. you're talking about a minimum wage today of being twelve sixty-one an hour. Um, hmm. Now that's not tagged to, you know, there's many studies that demonstrate, you know, at least regionally, right, 
if you want to like have even just the most basic standard of living with children in Chicago, you probably need to be earning about $20 an hour. But we're just sort of talking about a national, a base national average, and we're still very far from $12.61 an hour in a lot of places, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just, you know, know, the, the question is then, People sort of be like, oh, okay, well, does somebody making a hamburger at McDonald's deserve $15 an hour? And many of my students will ask me, like, no, they do not, <laughs> right? But if you start the conversation with what is the purpose of a minimum wage, right? And what does a minimum wage need to be for you to have that, like, ramen, or the ramen noodle standard of living, right? It really is about, you know, especially in an urban area, yeah. right? About $15 an hour, right? So if you say that, then the next question being, so does somebody doing a minimum wage job deserve $15 an hour? Then people would say, yes. So, okay, so what's a minimum wage job? McDonald's, right? Mm-hmm. When you come at it from that mm-hmm. way, mm-hmm. It's, it's important to think about, right? Yeah. Um, we at the Illinois Economic Policy Institute did a study on what it would take for just a single person living alone to afford a one-bedroom rent in five Midwestern states, um, Illinois, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Iowa, and Indiana. And in Illinois, the average uh, minimum, the average wage needed just to afford uh, a one-bedroom rent, according to HUD, fair market rents for one person, person. is uh, about $16 an hour. Um, Same across the whole Midwest, the average is at least 10, if not more, especially certain regions. Uh, the Chicago area, Twin Cities is, you know, something like it, it's over $15 an hour. There's a couple that are over 15 All the urban areas in these in these five states, it's, you know, $13 or more. So that's just to afford one-bedroom rent so that you're not cost-burdened, right? Because there's – the in term. the housing yes. uh, policy, if you're spending uh, more than 30% yeah. of your income right. yeah, on housing. Right. You're, yeah, so in order to be 30%, just even at that threshold, let alone below it, um, it's $16 an hour. I mean, obviously, there's the debate about minimum wage. Does it does it cause job loss? And there's a lot of evidence to say that it, if it does, it's minimal, and a lot of evidence to say it doesn't. And there's lots of reasons for this. Um, you know, primarily, people who earn the minimum wage are low low income earners. That makes sense, and they tend to spend a lot more of their income back in the economy than rich people who tend to save a larger share. So, if you're spending more money in the economy, that creates jobs. Um, it reduces that inequality. But then. The other thing that people often in this in this debate don't consider is, is what employers do when faced with the minimum wage, and they adjust in a lot of different ways, right? They they adjust by even sometimes taking a little bit uh, less uh, profits. You know, maybe they do adjust by eliminating jobs in this one industry, but then because those workers who uh, earn low income actually are spending more, there are there's job increases in other other industries, so they offset each other. So we have to consider all of these different factors, and when we do, you know. Especially in Chicago, a $15 minimum wage, it may cause a couple employers right away to say, ah, we have to lay off all my employees, but let it play out over just a couple of months, and you'll see that there's almost no impact. And that's, there, there's been studies for the Seattle area, too, where this has been yeah. the case, um, where that the employment impact is almost um, you know, nothing. So that's, uh, I think it's an important policy going forward. So why do we see it passing in so many different places? I mean, in places where, for example... Um, where Arizona passed a minimum exactly. wage increase this where election. Right, where you'd see, you know, you wouldn't see any other progressive legislation passed, particularly uh, particularly a lot of anti-collective bargaining. Right, uh, South laws. Dakota. And yet we're seeing minimum wage 
uh, bills get passed. And I think it's because it really isn't just a blue state, for example. You know, it's not just a one state or one regional problem. There really is significant, severe income inequality in right. this country. Uh, and I don't know exactly what the percent is, but, but a short time ago, it was something like one out of every four jobs paid less than $10 mm-hmm. an hour. And you just got done, you know, saying Frank and Emily. You did the, you know, you did the conversion from '68 to to the current uh, to current time. What that minimum wage would be worth? Would be worth, you know, it, just to have decent living standards, you would need to be above 10. But you, more realistically, you need to be upwards of 12 or 16, just so that that job doesn't leave you poor, mm-hmm. right? Uh, otherwise. It would be it would be United States policy across the country, right. right? To 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 create and preserve jobs that keep people poor, which puts an enormous burden, quite frankly, on the Treasury and on you know tax support. That's yeah. That's so this really is an here. enormous national problem. Um, one of the interesting things that we're looking at here at the Project for Middle Class Renewal and yeah. others people have you know analysts have looked begun to look at this. So boom, minimum wage passes. Boom, we get paid sick days mm-hmm. in Chicago and Cook County. Uh, and now uh, scheduling laws. I think San Francisco, and there are not a whole lot of these yet that have been passed, but right. something that's, that says you're going to get your schedule a week in advance, you're going to be guaranteed X number of hours. If you show up for work and there is no work, you're going to get four hours of pay. Uh, you know, you can raise a, you can ask to have your schedule changed without being retaliated against. Uh, if if you're on call and you get called in, you get paid. If you're on call, you get paid. Anyway, these kinds of bills. Well, so the question is then, how do these things kind of interact with each other? Right. There are, are there interactive effects? And anecdotally, we're led to believe we think that as that wage minimum wage goes up, the employer ratchets down the number of hours mm-hmm. that someone gets. Or under Obamacare, was it 30 hours a week? Six. There was a minimum number of hours you had to work before you were eligible. Okay. I don't call it was 30 or 36. but So you just keep people under those right. hours so that they don't. So that that's a particularly pernicious problem. Uh, will empl- Are there these interactive effects? And will employers be, and we think that's what's, that is happening Certainly. in fast food around schedule because we heard, I know I heard, but this wasn't uncommon. When I served on the mayor's task force, families task force here in Chicago, we heard testimony from workers uh, working in the restaurant industry. And, you know, they all talked about how the biggest issue was scheduling. And there seemed to be some manipulation about how many hours you could get and nobody could get more than these hours. And there was this fluctuation between like, you know, I don't know, 12 hours and then 22 yeah. uh, from week to week. So that, that becomes another challenge. Can you write the policy and can you enforce it mm-hmm. so that you know, one good thing here doesn't lead to an unintended consequence? Because it does appear as if Certainly. employers are still going to try to keep control of their cost. And you, in fact, you were just talking about that, Frank. Yeah. Right. Um, and and, and, I mean, and do you, is that what you've heard too, Emily, in, in, in fast food and in hotel and restaurant? Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think it's, you know, it, it's no longer, you know, the, 
the historical problem is being overworked, right? Now it's being sort of underworked yeah. um, because you're not able to put together enough hours reliably from week to week to, to have what we would call a full-time job, which is 40 hours a week, right? And I mean, and even in the jobs in the, in the building trades, for example, I mean, these are obviously unionized building trades, like well, well-paid jobs, but where the workers in the building trades really make their money is through overtime, right? Grabbing as much overtime as possible. And that's where workers often find themselves, you know. So when I worked in food service, it was always trying to grab as much overtime as you possibly could to maximize, you know, your your earnings. And that's just like, uh, no one, you know, workers, do, employers do everything they possibly can to avoid having to pay time and a half or, or double time, you know, whatever they can to the point where you're talking about split shifts or, you know, not enough hours or inconsistent scheduling, which, you know, has the impact that one, you're not earning enough, but two, it, it makes it almost impossible to hold down a second job yeah, yeah. if that's something you're trying to do because your schedule at job number one is so inconsistent or your schedule at both jobs are so inconsistent. There's no way possibly even a single person with no children could be a responsible worker and show up when they're supposed to be able to show up, right? Right, right. Forget about adding, you know, uh, the burden of, of care, you know, whether it's a child or a family member having to provide care for somebody. When are you possibly supposed to, how, how do you how do you manage a, an unpredictable schedule? Which is why it is so great that we're talking about having these kinds of scheduling laws. But the question is like, what's the teeth? Like what, how do we... What's the enforcement mechanism? Is the enforcement mechanism going to be right. um, uh, hardy enough that it makes that, that there's an incentive for the employers not to violate it, or is it eh, a little slap on the wrist here, a fee here? It's it's just a you know matter of doing business, right? Um, yeah. Well, on a, on a policy as universal as the minimum wage, which we've talked a lot about. Um, Enforcement of, of that is not as near as anywhere near as high as we would like it to be, and as strong as we would like it to be. We know that wage theft is a huge problem. We know that employers, instead of hiring someone, will just contract the work so that they don't have to pay a, you know the minimum wage. Right. Um, and the con- and they they'll they'll agree. Okay, this is the terms of the contract kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, we know that happens, and I think the point um, I also want to make is that. Um, by not having some of these policies, right? By not having an, a higher minimum wage, by not having paid sick leave, by not having um, you know childcare, there are significant costs to not having this that people do not consider in the dialogue often. So, and we've touched upon this briefly with the minimum wage, but workers who who work at at McDonald's um, have a much higher you know propensity um, likelihood of being. Uh, you know, on food stamps and on yeah. other government programs. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah. And the yeah. question to me is, who should be paying for that? So should taxpayers be paying for them to be on food stamps? Or should the people who actually eat at McDonald's uh, pay a, a slightly higher price for the cheeseburger so that the workers can earn a, a living wage? I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know. I know I, I go to McDonald's. I go to fast food places. I have many friends who don't. Why should they be paying higher taxes? At what point is too much is enough enough, right? Right. You know the the stockholders, the shareholders, and the CEOs, and the you know of of fast food, the fast food industry of of big box stores are making money hand over fist, right? Um, mm-hmm. But but the taxpayers are subsidizing that through a variety exactly. of ways, right? Whether it's tax benefits, whether it's TIF money, whether it's you know, their workers being on food stamps or childcare subsidies yep. or Section 8 housing 
um, or using the emergency room because they can't afford health insurance. Even if the employer provides health insurance, they can't afford that health insurance. Um, so instead of having a regular primary yeah. care physician, they're going to the emergency room or um, and not, you know, or you, you know, any number of ways in which, you know, the taxpayers are subsidizing, you know, exactly. it's corporate welfare, right? And so, um, and certainly as somebody who's working full time, you don't want to have to rely on those benefits either. You know, you, you work full time, you want to be able to support your family. And, right. You know, right. I, I just, I always, yeah. this I hear this uh, quote in my head from the film At the River I Stand about the 1968 Memphis sanitation strike and one of the sanitation workers says they, they just got sick and tired of the handouts mm-hmm. you know yes. that you work and you earn and you want to be able to consume yeah. and make choices in the same way that anybody else does and you don't want to rely on handouts and I think the, the vast majority of people who are relying on food stamps or any other thing they don't want to be you know, it's not, mm-hmm. it's not, you know, they're meant to be stopgap measures to help you get a better life, no. not something to, to keep, um, McDonald's earning tons of money, tons of money. you know, right. I mean, it's sure. just, that's the reality. Right. And, and yeah. so the question is like, why don't we have policies that intervene there? If your corporation, if you have workers are having to rely on this stuff, then that company needs to be paying more. Yeah, right? that's right. And I, and, and some states, some uh, I think Maryland perhaps, uh, there may even be something proposed in Illinois that actually addresses a kind of employee head tax, that there's a kind of a tax on on um, on on number of employees based on the revenue that you generate. Yeah, in Illinois, it's a pay, it's a basically a payroll tax. It's based on how much you pay. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, it, that's right. And I think in Maryland there was something that if you're not providing health care, you know, to your employees, then there's going to be this fee because what what you were describing, Frank and Emily, mm-hmm. also was that there were these private benefits, private profits, but we socialized the cost, yeah. right? So it was really sort of the high public cost of these low wages. Yeah. And these policies are an attempt uh, to really um, uh, take that burden off of really the general public, uh, make it clear that the employer has responsibilities, mm-hmm. uh, quite frankly, and that cost should be borne there uh, because the because the benefits mm-hmm. to those workers to their families and to the broader community, uh, quite frankly, uh, you know, are, uh, are are just enormous. One last thing about minimum sort of conditions. Sure. So, so we have, we've got minimum wage and that creates a foundation, but we also have a tax in a lot of these states. Uh, and and, and you, again, you may have the number. It's 16 or 17 over the last few years. So there are minimum standards around using public dollars on infrastructure projects, what are called prevailing wage laws. Yep. And that, they're meant to create a floor. Uh, and there are attacks to roll those back so that you can take those tax dollars uh, and essentially uh, they'll, they're profitable for a contractor, but they don't prove to be as profitable uh, for people who are doing the work. So there's a rolling back of that. And now, like there's legislation for a national right to work bill introduced, somebody from South Carolina, somebody from Iowa, both very conservative right-wing Republicans. Mm-hmm. If you can further weaken organized labor, right, that's another institution that can hold up that floor, that can protect workers. Uh, again, what are you doing? You're shifting the burden onto workers. You're shifting more wealth uh, into the hands of a smaller percentage of people, mm-hmm. the 1%. Yeah. So that's another way in which these attacks are, are happening. 
in, in states across the country lately that have passed right-to-work um, laws, the repeal of their prevailing wage laws has basically gone hand-in-hand with that. Yeah. It's part of the, the broader um, you know, attack, I, I would say, on, on working-class families. And, and the you know, prevailing wage laws uh, only affect... Uh, construction workers and and you know especially on publicly funded projects schools roads bridges but the the impact is much broader so um, what we see in the research is that when prevailing wage laws are repealed workplace injuries go up productivity goes down all of this stuff actually has costs that that are placed on the uh, the taxpayer ultimately yeah, that's right. and uh, government assistance for construction workers goes up in those states locally what some places have done to counter the repeal of prevailing wage laws is our past two different types of, of uh, initiatives. One is called, um, often called the responsible bidder ordinance. And so, you know, in order to do construction work in our county, in our city, the contractors bidding on the project have to prove um, that they have a safe mm-hmm. uh, record, you know, have a, a good track record in terms of safety. Their workers, they're, they're funding an, a, an apprenticeship program mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, also, and all these other kind of sorts of high road um, contracting uh, agreement. So in order to actually get the, the taxpayer right. dollars, you have to meet these minimum sure. standards, as you're saying. Um, another track that was taken, for instance, in uh, Nashville, Tennessee doesn't have a prevailing wage law. Um, and when you don't have a prevailing wage law, a lot of lo- uh, local contractors start to lose work from out-of-state or even foreign contractors. And so in order to combat that, uh, the city of Nashville decided to pass a local hire Ordinance so yeah. that a certain threshold, I think it was forty percent of all the work, has to be done by residents of Nashville. Nashville. Wow. The point I want to make here is that the state then went and passed a law that said you cannot do this. So they preempt. So these laws passed at the state level that preempt the locals exactly. uh, from pushing legislation that's more progressive and more protective. So yeah. that's the point I want to make Incredible. is that so at lo- at the local level we, you can kind of do these things, but then if the state comes yeah. in and preempts yeah. it and says yeah. no, you can't do it. The question I have is, are are we winning these local battles but losing the larger war? So if na- if right to work is passed nationally, we know right to work reduces the a- average worker wages by three percent. That's at all workers um, by True. you know about say three percent. For union workers, it's much higher. If they lose their union, then it's you know fifteen percent. You know that affects all workers and it affects the you know eleven percent who are in unions. Minimum wage only affects the you know the bottom say ten percent or twenty five percent depending on what it is. So how, are we are we winning these local battles but losing the war? Do you know how much time we have for that answer? <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, take it away. <laughs> well, yeah, I think if we look at it today, yes, yeah. the answer is obviously yeah. yes. I mean, you know, if we look at the long haul. I don't know. It's been a pretty dismal story, right? So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I think there definitely has been a trend um, to toward, you know, I mean, I think that we have been worn down by neoliberal economic policy. That's just the bottom line, that that, that policy... Even the Trump voters are worn down by it. Right, which is why they voted yeah. for him, because there is this image, you know, he has masterfully created an image of himself as, you know, a self-made entrepreneur, which we know is not at all near the truth. Um, but that was the image that got put forward. And, and I think people who, many people who voted for him, um, the people who are, who, who did it out of sort of economic distress, um, mm-hmm. saw, okay, I need, we need a change. Right. Um, there are many other layers to that. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, I, I, I do think that we're in a, a, a period of, of dark, bleak days. Um, does that mean we give up the fight? No. Um, you know, we plenty of historical moments, right? When plenty, plenty of historical moments to look at. Um, unfortunately, as, as we've said in other podcasts, the, that middle class boom really has only blipped once. So the question is, will it, can it blip again if we don't have a radical departure from our current economic policy? In fact, I would only add to that is that, you know, as national policy targeting organized labor um, preempts state collective bargaining protections, uh, and of course what we're principally talking about here is in the private sector. Right. Uh, so it's not yet quite clear how it uh, would impact public sector uh, workers. States have passed their own right-to-work laws that have targeted collective bargaining in the public sector. But, but, this, is, but this, is under, you know, this is a process that's been unfolding for some time now. We may be reaching its uh, epogee, but it's been evolving. Uh, and what we're going to rely on, or what may have to be the strategy, is it's a piecemeal rights-based approach. So yeah. there's, there's greater attacks on organized labor, and there's less that we can do as a union, uh, but we still have, but, but, but we still have a National Labor Relations Act. And it, as Emily has pointed out, it, it allows workers to organize, to collectivize, and we'll take on different forms. That'll be perfectly legal. And the effort will be, there'll be an added uh, emphasis on passing piece by pieces of legislation. Right. So we'll get at doing the best we can to move forward and, and, and improve working conditions uh, and the lives of working people uh, through public policy, through individual pieces of legislation, where before a collective bargaining agreement mm-hmm. would essentially have been all the government you needed. Right. 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 Uh, now we're going to need we're going to need to have more policy uh, in place and a lot of creative organizing that's still legal under the law, even if it even you know even if we don't call it a union. And right. it, it's still a form of collective leveraging and maybe bargaining and contract, but we'll have to get creative. So I think we end up where we started, and, and that is we really are going to have to put a lot of emphasis and attention to state, county, local pieces of public policy uh, that address worker issues. Uh, and I guess, you know, can a government in four years preempt all of that shit? I mean, can, can they just wipe them all out at the federal level? Uh, there's probably a lot of other things that the administration is going to have to do. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think there's still a lot of dynamic possibilities, uh, even if the labor movement, its numbers aren't able to grow substantially in the next four years. Yeah. yeah. At, least, at least organized labor can be at the forefront, be part of a coalition to protect workers through public policy, through other organizing, so that when the day comes, when it's not so dark and the light shines again, uh, organized labor will be that institution that will have built a a coalition uh, of the willing and of the grateful. Well, I think that's a great place to end and a little bit more of an optimistic note. So um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the ninth episode of For a Living. Please feel free to comment on our podcast in the notes or on the blog. For Bob and Emily, I've been Frank. Thanks for listening. 
All music on the For a Living podcast comes from the 2015 song Pass Pie by the Punch Brothers.